Welcome to Sky Women. I'm your host, Dr. Carolyn Moyers, a wife, mom, and board-certified OB-GYN. This is a place to educate, empower, and inspire. Join us each week as we share the power of women's stories. Real women, real stories, real inspiration. Put on your stretchy pants. Let's get going. Welcome, Sky community. Welcome back to another episode of Sky Women. I am so excited that you are with us today because for the first time, we have a gynecologic oncologist with us today. And why I have never asked one of my Gen Onc colleagues to come on, I'm not quite sure, but there are so many important topics that I feel like we should address, particularly this month with it being Ovarian Cancer Awareness Month. We have with us the lovely Tiffany Redfern, who is a gynecologic oncologist with for cancer and blood disorders in Fort Worth, Texas. Welcome, Dr. Redfern. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. So first of all, I want to explain to our listeners, what is a gynecologic oncologist? Because I feel like I explain this a lot. So my field specializes in cancer-specific for the GYN tract. So that includes cervical cancer, uterine cancer, fallopian tube cancer, ovarian cancer, and a primary peritoneal cancer. Gynecologic oncology is a very specialized field because we not only are surgical oncologists, but we also are medical oncologists. Many gynocs do their own chemotherapy for these cancers as well right. as operate on the patient. So I really love that we treat the entire patient as a whole person through the entire process. And so we help facilitate whether they need surgical intervention, chemotherapy, or even have to do radiation or a combination of all of those. That's a really great point. I do remember that from my gen on rotations, how, how really unique that is that a lot of times you're doing the calculations, you're deciding how the chemotherapy is going to go, you're controlling the regimens and that is really unique. So gynecologic oncologists also are OB-GYNs first, right? We're OB-GYNs first and then move forward into uh, gen onc fellowship. And so you really have a broad spectrum of all things related to women's health. Yes. In order to do gynecologic oncology, you go to medical school, then you complete a four-year OBGYN residency, and then you go on for a fellowship. And that ranges from three to four years, depending on the program that you choose. So you really get to know all about multiple aspects of women's health. And so that way we're able to treat patients of all ages um, for various things. And frequently, we also deal with benign complex diseases such as endometriosis or cervical right. dysplasia in pregnancy. So it's, it's a really great field. Yeah. When we're meeting more advanced surgical hands, uh, you guys are the first ones that I call. <laughs> Absolutely. So GYN oncologists are very skilled surgeons. And this is why, you know, sometimes whenever your primary OBGYN might be referring you out, it's for good reason. You want somebody who's really comfortable and really skilled. So, okay, let's get into it though. So I wanted to chat with you today about, we'll bust, bust the myths at the end. I want everybody to get to know you as well because you're a year into the community, right? So why don't you tell everyone quickly, just um, you're a mom of two, you're married to a pilot. So you do a lot of things solo at times. Like give us kind of the behind the scenes for Tiffany. 
Yeah. So I am actually from South Texas. I grew up in a town called Pleasanton, which is about 30 minutes south of San Antonio. So I'm a Texas girl. Uh, I did medical school at University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, and then I stayed there for residency. We actually moved to Memphis, Tennessee for my fellowship. And during my residency, I had my first baby. And then in fellowship, I had my second baby. So I really got to experience having, you know, maintaining that personal life and training, which was interesting. And then we decided to settle down in Fort Worth, Texas. And let me tell you, it's just been one of my favorite places uh, that we've lived. My husband and I have been married for almost nine years and we've actually moved eight times in that marriage. <laughs> so wow. it's um, been very interesting and we really just have loved calling Fort Worth home. And now my children are two and five. And so we've just really enjoyed getting involved in this community here. Like you said, my husband's a pilot, and so he gets to travel all around. So anyone who ever needs advice, being a working mom or just someone to vent to, feel free, always reach out, contact me. Uh, I'm happy to talk more about that because it is uh, can be hard, but also really fulfilling, but definitely keeps me on my toes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you are balancing it all. So we appreciate your time today and chatting with us and just helping everyone kind of get to know you and also educate. So I want to talk about ovarian cancer specifically because, you know, a lot of people call it, you know, the silent cancer or whatever. I mean, there are definitely symptoms, but they're subtle, right? So kind of talk to us about that. And then specifically, I want to talk about when you have a BRCA positive diagnosis. Yeah, so ovarian cancer can be a very scary cancer because there is no surveillance for this type of cancer. One of the things I really love about this field of medicine is just being able to educate patients because it can be a very gray area that people feel uncomfortable talking about. And so a lot of times the information gained isn't until you get the diagnosis and then all of a sudden you're realizing, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Because GYN malignancies can be uncomfortable for people to talk about, we just tend to have a lot of misinformation out there, and frequently patients don't know where to go for great resources. So one thing I'd like to first talk about is that screening for ovarian cancer. So like I said, there is no accepted screening guidelines for ovarian cancer. So when you go to your well woman check and they do what we all know is known as a pap smear. A pap smear is not just a pelvic exam. It is an actual test that we do, usually with something called the cytobrush that gets cells off of the cervix. And it only tests for cervical cancer. It does not test for any of the GYN malignancies I had talked about at the beginning of the podcast. So frequently, these ovarian cancers are not found until stage three or four. Unfortunately, over 75% of ovarian cancers are actually found at advanced stages. And the ones found early stage, like stages one and two, where they're confined to the ovary or the pelvis, those are usually incidentally found during having procedures for other issues. Now, some of the symptoms, as you're alluding to, can be very vague. However, it's important when you go to your 
primary care physician or your OBGYN to tell them all the symptoms you may be having because you may think that it's unrelated to your GYN exam, but can actually be a very big telltale sign for ovarian cancer. Some of those symptoms can be something as simple as bloating, decreased appetite, unexpected weight loss. The other thing is if you notice that you're not as hungry as usual, but you're gaining weight, that can also be a sign because you could be having something called ascites, which is fluid retention in the abdomen causing a weight gain, but your overall actual muscle mass and weight is decreasing. So that can be a very falsely elevated, you know, in your head, you're like, well, I feel like I'm not eating that much, but I'm gaining weight. It's worth mentioning because while although it's probably nothing, it's something that the doctor can evaluate to rule out and to look further into. Also, something very common that I hear, once you have gone through menopause, any bleeding, even if it's only spotting one time, it's very important to reach out and talk to your doctor about that. I always joke with my patients that the one plus of menopause is not having to deal with vaginal bleeding anymore. And so that is a big red flag. If you're having it, don't brush it off. Even if it may be just a very small amount, it's definitely worth mentioning because it's a very easy workup that we can do to make sure to rule out all of the scary things that could be the cause of that. Now, right. So there always could be a a benign cause, right? Exactly. For, for whatever your symptoms are. But if we don't look, we don't know. And so I do, I have had many patients tell me, oh, I just don't want to know when they haven't been to the gynecologist for a decade, you know, oh, I just don't want to know. And I'm like, or you could, you could die a slow, painful death, or we could do something that's preventative, right? (laughs) Catching it early is key. So yeah, absolutely. I think you've got to pay attention to those symptoms, any postmenopausal bleeding, bloating, change in bowel or bladder habits. uh, We've really got to address those early. Completely agree. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were saying. Well, actually, you, it was a perfect segue. What I was going to say is most of the time your symptoms are from benign causes, whether that's just postmenopausal issues with vaginal atrophy, GI issues, more colon related with diverticulitis or diverticulosis. The lifetime risk for ovarian cancer is actually very low. It's about one in 70 patients, which is about 1.7%. Because it's such a rare disease, that's why it makes it a very hard test to screen for because frequently you hear about these tumor markers such as CA-125. Now that is a tumor marker that is commonly elevated with ovarian cancer, but there've been multiple studies that have shown that doing that routinely does not help in the identification of ovarian cancer because it can also be elevated in other benign diseases. Like we talked about anything with inflammation or endometriosis. So that's why it's important that just remember, don't be scared. Just mention it so that we can do the appropriate workup and, you know, hopefully maybe even help relieve your symptoms. And if it is a cancer, you're right. Catching it early is key. So you mentioned the incidence of ovarian cancer being much more rare versus breast cancer where it's one in eight. 
Yes. Uh, for breast cancer, it's much more common. And the genetic mutation that we're going to talk about today will actually point out why it's such a big difference and importance to know that if you're at risk for that. And the nice thing about breast cancer is that there is a screening test for it. However, in order for that screening test to work, you actually have to go get it done. So you know, none of us like going to the gynecologist, even me, I tell my patients every time that I am very uncomfortable going to the OBGYN. And so I understand when patients come to me, it can be a very scary thing, but you need to find a physician that you feel comfortable with. And if you've had bad experiences in the past, Go to a new doctor, reach out, talk to your friends about finding someone because there's lots of us in the community that really just want to make you as comfortable as possible and, you know, help you learn about your body and find someone you're comfortable with so that you continue to get your surveillance and hopefully mitigate any of these cancers. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so on that, I have a particular patient in mind who I will not identify, but I want us to kind of dive into because, you know, most of the time our breast cancers are not hereditary. However, when they are, our specific gene BRCA1 or 2 um, positive, it creates a lot of anxiety. So in my particular patient, I'm thinking of her mom was going through breast cancer treatment and was BRCA positive, and therefore she got tested and test it positive for BRCA2. And so then we have to have this lengthy conversation about what are our risk, our lifetime risk for breast cancer, right? Because it increased significantly for her, our lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. And what do we do to mitigate those risks? How do we decrease those risks, especially if we're done having babies? So let's kind of talk through that. Yeah, so that's a great question. First, I would like to point out a lot of people don't understand genetics, obviously, because we didn't all go get college courses for that. But there are mutations within our DNA that can predispose us to cancer. There are lots of different types of genes, and we find more every day that can put you at a higher risk for these cancers. The reason that we hear about BRCA1 and 2 is because of the genetic mutations that cause cancer, 70% of them are due to BRCA of the ones who do have a genetic cause. Now, just because you have no family history of cancer does not mean that you do not have a genetic mutation. Actually, in over 50% of people who are found to have BRCA have no family history of any types of cancer. But people that should be screened include if you do have a diagnosis of an epithelial ovarian cancer, if you have breast cancer that was diagnosed at age 45 or less, and then if you also have breast cancer in a family relative under the age of 50, and there are just, you could read a whole page of who would qualify for genetic testing. But it's important that these cancers are not just associated with breast and ovarian cancer. They can also be associated with prostate cancers, bile duct cancers, melanomas. And so when you talk to your doctor, make sure you give a full disclosure. Don't just say, well, I don't have any history of breast or ovarian or GYN cancers. Make sure you talk about all of the family 
cancers because even colon cancer may have a different type of genetic mutation that could put you at a higher risk for ovarian cancer. Now, as far as decreasing your risk for these cancers, first off, most ovarian cancers are thought to actually arise in the fallopian tube, specifically in the fimbria part of the fallopian tube. So whenever women go and have a bilateral tubal ligation or a BTL, it's important to talk to your doctor about the type of tubal ligation that they do because there is literature that supports that if you do what we call it a salpingectomy or the removal of the entire fallopian tube, that that can actually help decrease your risk of ovarian cancer in the future. Now, doing a general bilateral tubal ligation with other methods may also decrease your risk. So that will be shared decision-making between you and your doctor about which procedure is right for you. I am seeing more and more, and because I am at several hospitals in the community, that it's pretty standard of care for doing a tubal or removing the fallopian tubes. That's really great for the patient. That's what I prefer for my patients. But it's important to point it out to your doctor in case you may not be in an area who does that normally. Right, right. That's a good point. So say we have a patient who is BRCA positive. You know, let's go through like what a general counseling looks like, because this doesn't mean that they're going to get ovarian cancer or breast cancer. It doesn't mean that they have breast or ovarian cancer. It just means that they're at an increased lifetime risk of getting one of these cancers. And so you mentioned that we could do essentially a prophylactic salpingectomy, removing those fallopian tubes, and that can reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. But really the standard, if they're done having children, is a BSO, bilateral stopping oophorectomy, removing the fallopian tubes and the ovaries, right? But then we're making them prematurely menopausal. If they're say 35, 38, they may be done having their children, but they're not really that interested in being menopausal at this point. And then what is safe to do hormone, you know, is it safe to do hormone replacement therapy? And so we just opened this can of worms of all of the what ifs. That is very, very great points. So First, if you get diagnosed with BRCA, whether that be one or two, there are very specific guidelines about screening as well as management that is going to be different than the general population. So I'm going to talk about screening and intervention for BRCA, then I'll talk about it for the general population. So it's important that once you get diagnosed for BRCA, you're right, that does not in quotations mean a death sentence. This is actually great because you know that you're at a higher risk and there are interventions you can do to prevent from getting those cancers. And so for breast cancer, once you've been diagnosed with a BRCA mutation, they actually recommend screening to start at the age of 25. That's different from the recommended age of 45 for the general population. So from 25 to 29, that screening for breast cancer would include a clinical breast exam every 6 to 12 months and an annual imaging screen. Generally for the younger patients, we recommend a breast MRI, but you can discuss that with your provider, whether they recommend an MRI versus a mammogram. Now, once you hit age 30, 
those recommendations are going to transition to an annual breast mammogram and an MRI. And generally, providers will alternate these every six months, as well as doing a clinical breast exam every six to 12 months. Now, I previously said that there is no recommended screening test for ovarian cancer. And even with patients with BRCA, ACOG, which is our governing body that gives us our standard of cares, does not routinely recommend screening for ovarian cancer. However, it is reasonable to consider surveillance for short-term surveillance until around ages 30 to 35 for BRCA1 and 40 to 45 for BRCA2. Now, for a prophylactic oophorectomy or prophylactic salping oophorectomy, I should appropriately say, that's going to be the removal of your ovaries and fallopian tubes. That is recommended in patients with a BRCA mutation as that will decrease your risk of ovarian cancer 95%. That's now, huge. <laughs> a lot of patients are like, well, if you took my ovaries out, why is it not 100%? And there are a couple of theories of why that is, but we can develop something called a primary peritoneal cancer which is also increased in patients with BRCA. And so that's why it's not 100% that you can still have that small chance of cancer. However, decreasing a risk of cancer 95% is really great odds. Now, reasons that patients may not be ready at age 30 to have a bilateral salping oophorectomy include they may not have completed their childbearing or they've discussed the risk and benefits of doing a premature oophorectomy and going into premature menopause. And they may decide that for their lifestyle or their choices that they're not ready. And that's when you would consider just doing a salpingectomy until they are ready to have their oophorectomy. A salpingectomy is not considered a standard of care, but in a patient who's not ready to have to be a full BSO, it would be in a reasonable thing to help reduce those risks. Now, right. if you don't have a BRCA mutation, I would not recommend bilateral salping oophorectomy just to prevent the risk of breast cancer because the risk of ovarian cancer is so low without these mutations, the risk of having a complication such as osteoporosis, worse heart health, cardiovascular issues, hot flashes, and other menopausal symptoms are much higher risk. So that's why we don't recommend it for the general population. Right, right. Like nobody is interested in premature menopause. So that brings up a, a good point because if we live long enough, all of us are going to go through menopause. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about menopause and hormone therapy. And in my opinion, women are being really taken advantage of in this day and age. And a lot, and women who have had cancer are at a heightened awareness, fear of hormone therapy. But usually whenever I talk to their oncologists, nobody wants them to die of misery from their hormone or from their lack of hormones and their menopausal symptoms, their vasomotor symptoms. So can you talk to us a little bit about hormone therapy in the postmenopausal, whether premature or, you know, surgically premature or whether just menopause in general due to age, how that kind of plays into your thoughts when they've had cancer? 
female genital cancer. Absolutely. So when you have a prophylactic bilateral salpingoophorectomy for BRCA, this is generally done in a premenopausal patient. Now, even providers sometimes get antsy or confused about these guidelines because with certain cancers that, especially those that are estrogen driven, it is contraindicated to do hormonal therapy. However, in a patient with a genetic mutation that does not have a cancer, it is absolutely acceptable to do hormone replacement therapy to mitigate the effects of early menopause. And those will also help with the cardiovascular health and bone protection issues that we were talking about. Now, there was a very large study performed by the World Health Organization that looked at hormonal replacement therapy. And one of the big things that was concerning to providers and patients was there was an increased risk of breast cancer. However, those increased risks were only in the estrogen and progesterone arm and not in the estrogen alone arm. And so if you've had this prophylactic surgery, especially if you don't have your uterus in place and you are only needing estrogen, this has not been shown to increase your risk of breast cancer. Also, Given the higher rates of triple negative breast cancer in the BRCA population, hormonal replacement therapy would not alter that course at all. So in premenopausal patients, it's absolutely acceptable and even encouraged to give hormone replacement therapy to help protect that cardiovascular health and mitigate some of the other side effects for premature menopause. In postmenopausal patients, it's a little bit more controversial because they've already gone through menopause and a lot of those symptoms are in line with the baseline population. Now, you can discuss hormone replacement therapy with your physician because there's a lot of different types of hormonal therapy. Some are systemic and go through the whole body and some of them are localized such as vaginal estrogen. And I love vaginal estrogen. Vaginal estrogen does the body good. It is good for everybody. (laughs) It is like collagen for the face. Everyone needs a little vaginal estrogen. And it has actually been shown to be safe even in breast cancer patients who are ER or estrogen receptor positive. And so- Because we're not getting an elevation in the estrogen blood levels, but we're getting it where we need it in the vaginal epithelium, which is where we're seeing, you know, all the dryness and discomfort and misery that limits their sexual life, which, you know, impacts our our whole well-being. Absolutely, completely agree. Awesome. So this is exactly what I needed to know. So if uh, patients who are BRCA positive and have had prophylactic surgery can still undergo hormone therapy. And also if you have had cancer, then we're going to consult with your, if you have had ovarian cancer, then we can, we're going to consult with your GYM oncologist to decide if that's the best route for you. And if not, look for other alternatives and there definitely are alternatives there. Okay, Dr. Redfern, let's do some myth busting, okay? Which some of it I think that we've already addressed. Let's bust some myths about gynecologic cancer, okay? Number one, taking the birth control pill can increase your risk of getting gynecologic cancer. False. This is a complete myth. Oral contraceptive pills are actually very reasonable to use for cancer prophylaxis until patients can have a bilateral salpingoophorectomy with a genetic mutation. So OCPs or birth control pills as they're known as, 
it actually has a reduction of ovarian cancer risk estimated to be anywhere from 35 to 80% for BRCA1 and about 50 to 60% for BRCA2. And there is no increased risk of breast cancer in those with BRCA mutations using oral contraceptive pills. So they are actually protective of ovarian cancer. And even in the general population without BRCA, they have been shown to decrease the risk of ovarian cancer as well. Amazing. Yes. I love a good birth control pill. There are so many uses for it outside of preventing pregnancy and reducing ovarian cancer definitely is one of them. Okay. Next, cervical cancer cannot be prevented. This is also a myth. So one of the biggest questions I get in practice is why can't we cure cancer? And so one of the reasons I love my job is cancer is a very, very complex entity and it's constantly changing. However, there have been great strides in reducing many types of cancer. One of these is cervical cancer. We actually have a vaccine that is a vaccine against the human papilloma virus. And this virus actually causes 99% of cervical cancers. And so by getting this vaccine, you help protect yourself from nine of the major strands of HPV that causes cervical cancer. Also, there's things that we can do, such as having protective sex to decrease the risk of cervical cancer. But the number one thing we can do to prevent cervical cancer is going to your well woman exams and having your screening guidelines in addition to the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Screening is key here, but you also have a vaccine. I mean, it's it's just amazing. The strides we've made in cervical cancer are quite remarkable. And I do want to mention that you can actually get the HPV vaccine up to the age of 45 now. And for boys and girls, just to throw that out there, because when it first came out, it was just girls. And so a lot of people don't realize that boys can also, boys and men can get this vaccine as well. And I really advocate it in countries that have actually made it standard to get, they have almost eradicated cervical cancer, which is incredible. And even in the U.S., cervical cancer rates have in cervical dysplasia, they think that it's been decreased about 30 to 50% due to the vaccine. So I highly encourage people to look into that and discuss that with their physician starting from ages nine all the way until 45. Yes. Great point. Yes. I'm a boy mom. I've got four boys. All my boys will (laughs) get the vaccine. Yeah. And I personally got the vaccine. I was too old whenever it came out. And then I, whenever they increased the age, I was like, yeah, why not? My husband kind of looked at me with side eye and I was like, I tell my patients to get it. I'm going to get it. (laughs) I highly agree with that. And also one of the um, misconceptions is if you've been diagnosed with HPV, you no longer need the vaccine, but that's actually not true. It helps regress the strain that you have and prevents you from getting new strains in the future too. So just because you have HPV does not point a contraindication for that vaccine. Great point. Okay. Next myth. Are you ready? I'm ready. Pap (laughs) Pap tests can detect all gynecologic cancers. Absolutely false. So unfortunately, 
pap smears only test for cervical cancer. So it does not detect any other cancers, including endometrial, fallopian tube, ovarian, or primary peritoneal. Even with pap smears, unfortunately, the screening rates are also very low. It's thought that screening tests actually only detects 50% of cervical cancer. So going to the gynecologist once every 10 years is generally not enough to actually complete your screening guidelines. And so with the changing recommendations for cervical cancer, now above the ages of 30, you actually only have to have a pap smear with HPV testing once every five years. A lot longer than normal. Yes, as long as it's normal, correct. But a lot of women interpret this as they only have to go to the doctor once every five years. And that's just not true. You should still have someone perform a pelvic exam and to talk about the symptoms we talked about earlier in the podcast to make sure you don't need increased screening, as well as to take a look to make sure that everything looks normal and that an earlier screening test isn't indicated. Right, right. Okay. Amazing. So I had two other myths, but I think that we've really addressed them. You know, there are early symptoms of gynecologic cancer. We just can't ignore them. You know, we can't put off the abdominal pressure, the fullness, the swelling, the bloating, the urinary urgency, the pelvic discomfort, the abnormal bleeding, the discharge. Don't put those off and just, you know, like, oh, it's my time of the month or, you know, you just get busy and women put themselves in the back burner. These are things that need to be addressed with your gynecologist. And if you don't feel comfortable addressing them with your gynecologist, you need to find a new gynecologist. Completely agree. So tell everybody where they can find you. So my office is located at 800 West Magnolia. We're at the Center for Cancer and Blood Disorder. We have our uh, office building over here. It's a wonderful facility that has lots of ancillary services for our patients. So like I say, I see complex benign gyn as well as GYN malignancies, but we also have medical oncologists here who treat a variety of cancers. And for patients, we have services such as acupuncture, massage therapy, psychotherapy. Um, It's just a really great place that I feel really puts the patient first and really looks at the whole patient. We don't just treat your cancer, but we help you along the entire journey. Cancer can be- Oh, I love that. I mean, it, it is scary. It's very hard. And so I laugh and joke with my patients that when you come to see me, you become a part of the family that you never wanted to be a part of. But I right, do right. feel like each and every single one of my patients is my family and I treat them as such. And we're always available once you're here and you're established patient, you actually have a 24 hour, seven day a week number that you can call and get a hold of a provider anytime you need. Even if you just want more information and you aren't having symptoms and you have any questions about anything we talked about in the podcast today, I'm happy to go through that in detail because I think education is actually the number one thing we can do to help prevent these cancers and to get the right information out there. Agree, agree. And that is exactly why we started, or why I started Sky Women Podcast is because you can only see so many patients in a given day. So how do we reach patients beyond the exam room and how do we provide that education? Um, how do we make healthcare much more approachable? And I, I think that 
that's very meaningful to patients because there's so much misinformation out there. We really need to kind of put it in their hands and, and have them be empowered. I just want to say thank you so much for having me here. This is one of my passions. I don't love cancer, but I do love my patients and the road and paths that they go through. And they provide the inspiration to me so that I can go learn everything I can about cancer to help them through this path. And so I just really appreciate you allowing me to come and talk about my passion and helping your patients get more of the information out there. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us today. Until next week, be well. All right, Sky community. Thank you for listening to another episode. This episode was sponsored by Sky Women's Health. As a reminder, we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and we help relieve back pain and pelvic pain in pregnancy and beyond. If you are pregnant and having pain and you feel like you have no reliable way to relieve it, look us up at skywomenshealth.com, request an appointment, and we'll call to get you scheduled. As a board-certified OB-GYN with a Neuromusculoskeletal Medicine Fellowship, I help you realign with hands-on drug-free treatment and relieve pain on the spot without medication. We'll help you maintain these results through your pregnancy and postpartum period. Every pregnant person deserves this, and we are so excited to serve you. You can find us on our website, as mentioned, or on social at Sky Women's Health, or you can call the office at 817-915-9803. That's it for today. Until next week, be well.